0: Thanks for pressing play. If you love the serendipitous magic that can only occur in a real conversation, well, then you're in the right place. This is Christopher Lockhead. Follow your different. The real dialogue oddcast for business leaders, entrepreneurs, and category designers with a different mind. I'm producer Jason DeFilippo, and all of us here are glad you're here. What's the future of the tech startup world? What are tech venture capitalists doing now? How long will it take for San Francisco to recover? Our guest today is one of our favorites. Legendary thinking, entrepreneurs turned VC, Paul Martino of Bullpen Capital is back. Paul is the founder of eight companies, including Tribe, one of the world's first social networks, and Aggregate Knowledge, a big data advertising company. Paul holds over a dozen patents on core social networking concepts, content targeting, and recommendation systems. This is a fun, fascinating, and deeply insightful conversation with one of our favorite thinkers in the tech startup world. Now, did you know we throw away about 40% of our food? And food waste is gross, makes a mess in our homes, attracts raccoons, skunks, and rats. And food waste creates methane gases that are damaging to our world. Well now, food waste is a thing of the past, with Lomi, the world's first smart waste appliance, helping your family become planet-saving superheroes. With the press of a button, Lomi converts horrible food waste into magic compost in only a few hours, right in your kitchen. With Lomi, you go from polluting the planet to feeding the planet. You can put your Lomi magic dirt in your plant's garden or even your garbage. And no matter where your Lomi dirt goes, you know you're helping, not hurting. The new Lomi Bloom connects your iPhone to your Lomi, so your Lomi Bloom will measure each cycle and give you real-time data on your carbon impact. Go to Lomi.com today and learn how you can change the world with the push of a button. That's Lomi.com. And don't forget to pick up your copy of the number one bestseller in marketing and startups, Category Pirates' The 22 Laws of Category Design. On Amazon today, a recent reviewer said, brilliant, direct, and actionable prediction, going to be the book I gift the most. The 22 Laws of Category Design on Amazon today. Now, hey-ho, let's go.
1: All right,
2: Martino, how are you? Lockhead, it's always good to see you and your wall full of guitars.
1: <laughs> you got to have a wall full of guitars. <laughs>
2: is that a cat sitting next to you too? Uh, oh
1: yeah, it's actually go. um a cat who identifies as a dog. His name's Bean.
2: Oh, oh. Oh. Yeah, shit. Yeah, I See I got a hippopotamus right here and it identifies as a hippopotamus. I know that's rare.
1: Yeah. Well, this this is a cat that identifies as a dog. He his behavior is very dog-like and so uh, he's a rescue and when we first got him, he was a puppy. And I said, okay, well, if you're a dog, then, then you're a dog. And I take him to chopping at target with me.
2: <laughs> nice, nice <Lockhead.
1: laughs> I'll tell you when you walk into target and you have him in the baby pusher thing in the cart, um, you're going to, you end up having conversations with a lot of people.
2: <laughs> Lockhead, when you walk in anywhere, you have lots of conversations with somebody.
1: You know, it's funny you say that. I am the kind of person that can be standing in line at an airport, and somebody comes up to me and just starts talking to me as if we're longtime friends. It's been true all my yes. life. It happens to me at the coffee shop all, all the time. And, and living where I live, which is Wackadoo Weirdo Central, uh, you could be pumping gas in this town, and somebody will walk up to you and go, "You know, it's all a conspiracy." And you say, "Oh, I know." <laughs> you start talking to them about whatever the fuck it is.
2: <laughs> say it too loud. The pumps have ears.
1: Yeah yeah the pumps have years. Um, Putin's listening.
2: <laughs> so this
1: is a weird this is a weird time to be uh, a venture capitalist, is it not?
2: yeah, it's been a it's been a crappy eighteen months. there's no no two ways around it. but it's a funny time to actually have this conversation because there's we're in this little dead cat bounce in my opinion um, to talk about your dog there. Uh, I don't think we're anywhere near done with this. But, but we're in this rise where we had the Nasdaq's going to have like the best first half ever. Now, you tell me, Lockhead, do you really think stuff's good right now? So, so we're, we're, we're in that dead cat bounce right now where stuff's getting done. But there's got to be another shoe to drop here. There's no way we're out of this.
1: Well, it's interesting. I, uh, I, I had recently heard from a couple of entrepreneurs in, in different spaces that um, this quarter was actually going to be uh, more positive than they had thought. And I thought, huh, yep, is this indicative of something? So I went out and reached out to about another 15 or so CEOs that I know and said, how's the quarter looking without telling me anything you're not supposed to tell me? Um, and basically, the majority of them said, uh, it's still pretty rough out there. So I don't know. I don't have any data to share with you. I thought I was getting some positive signals, and there are some positive signals, But I think they're more mixed to uh, mediocre signals.
2: The thing I can say is the availability of capital for fundraising is significantly different this quarter than the prior five quarters. That's the thing I noticed. We had a lot of rounds that were almost impossible to get done, companies that were good struggling to raise. All of a sudden, once the weather turned, once we got in April, May, June, a lot of those rounds got done. A lot of them were oversubscribed. Uh, and again, it's it's funny. Our business is a business of confidence in a lot of ways. And when, when the Nasdaq's up 20 30% since the beginning of the year, all of a sudden, people start writing checks again. And so no doubt that anecdotally, Q2 fundraising is significantly up. When we see the numbers, I'm, I'm sure that that will be the case. But the question is, what happens next?
1: Well, let, we'll let's go to that in a second. The, the current environment is an interesting one. I have several companies that are looking to raise money. And what they're telling me is um, they're not going to go to traditional VCs like you guys because the, it's too hard and the valuations have fallen too much. And so they feel much more confident relying on the angel market. Uh, even for companies that would historically be raising a Series B or a Series C right now, they'd rather go back to existing investors and or friendlies as opposed to uh going to Sand Hill Road because at least the investor the the VC, the entrepreneurs I've been talking to they think uh Sand Hill Road is closed.
2: Yeah, and I I hate that by the way. I remember this like when I fir- going back to when I first met you. You know, our 010203 bust. You know, you'd sit there and you go, "Wait a minute, you have a 400 million dollar fund. How come nobody's in the office?" And you just sat around and you're like, "Look, I know stuff's hard right now, but the idea that you get to just go take off for two and a half years seems like a little bit of bullshit to me. And so the sentiment of the entrepreneurs that you're talking about, about sand hills closed, I get that. But trust me, the, the entrepreneurs turned venture people, the people like me, the people like Josh Koppelman, people like Mike Maples, we're, we're open for business because we're entrepreneurs first and venture weenie second. Um And also on the comment about uh, the the angel investors, a lot of times they're the first ones to head for the doors when the markets get bad. But when they're already on the cap table, that behavior you're describing makes a lot of sense. Let's go get a couple extra million bucks from our existing friendly people and not be in market right now. We see a ton of that.
1: Yeah, okay, so that does make sense. But you you don't think, uh, bullpen's not closed and you don't think a lot of the other historically- a successful early stage VCs, you think they're open for business.
2: Absolutely. And the earlier the stage, the more ready you are for business in a downturn, because the earlier you are, the longer your flowers are going to take to bloom. So a lot of people, when the market gets like this, they go from middle and late stage to early, 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 knowing that the capital markets will be better for them by the time the companies need that money. So, so early stage and late stage, it's like, it's like two different asset classes right now, Chris, right? Early stage, definitely open for business. Later stage, a lot harder.
1: That triangulates very much. Um, So on the, on the later stage, folks, I've been uh, looking forward to this conversation with you. So there are many companies that raised uh, money at super high valuations uh, in the 2000 to 2002 timeframe who did effectively private IPOs. Uh, we had the right. We had the tiger globals and all these folks who decided to come in and try to throw money at everything. And they created term sheet factories, hoping that it would work. And then it all blew up in their faces. Um, and I have a theory about that, that I'd love to talk to you about, but before we get to why that blew up, here's what I'm seeing. There's a lot of companies who in 2000, let's just call it 2021, 2022, somewhere in there, raised giant rounds at giant valuations. And now the entire company is underwater. Their stock options are cut in half or worse because they should never have been valued at that price. And they have a terrible time retaining people because their employee stock options are radically underwater. And in order to retain people, They're staring down, you know, huge recaps. So I'm curious what you're seeing with these late stage companies that ratcheted their valuations up so high, uh, you know, now that the party's over.
2: So we wrote a little white paper about this uh, and my CFO has a little spreadsheet attached to it. And I forget what it was called. Something like a, a down round isn't the worst thing. There is a big difference between a down round and a recap. And you doing a down round in particular, even with some friendly investors, some people who are around the hoop to get you enough time to do a st- new stock option price, have enough money to get to profitability. A down round doesn't kill you. A recap does kill you. Make no mistake. You don't want to be in the spot where you're in a recap. But you know, if you raised that hundred million dollar round from Tiger and you're twenty million dollars short. You know, go get your $20 million at a third of the price. It's really not the end of the world. That spreadsheet that's attached to the document, it'll it'll show you that's not the end of the world. Uh, but if you're in a spot where your business stinks and you're nowhere near profitability, good luck.
1: Well, and the ones that I wonder about are, you know, so the company that was growing, you know, SaaS company growing at 100% in 21, 22 is now growing at 30% or 20%. Right. And they had a, I don't know, I'll make it up. Let's say they had a $10 billion round the last time. And in reality, in today's world, that $10 billion company that was priced for perfection in the private markets in 2021, 2022 is probably worth what today? If they've gone from 100% growth to 25% growth, what would they be worth roughly?
2: That latest stage, I don't know. A $10 billion company, I don't know. It's a $3 billion company now. Okay, That'd be perfect.
1: So what do you do if with all your employees whose stock is now underwater and the reality is you might never be worth $10 billion ever again or it might be a very long time and all those employees could go work at a, a company that's um, not got this sort of valuation smash um, and, and get options priced at market today as opposed to at 2021 prices.
2: If the company takes its medicine, there's a way to solve that problem. And this is the beef I have with some of those CEOs. If you take your medicine and take your lower mark and get a new 409A valuation, you can cancel the old options and issue new ones. But the CEOs in general, for ego reasons, refuse to take their medicine. This is a religious point to me. Look, if I'm in a spot where my valuation went from 10 to 3, but I got a good company and I got to go retain my people. I don't stick my head in the sand and go, no, no, it's worth 10, it's worth 10, it's worth 10. No, I take it at three, I bring in a couple bucks, I let a couple people go, and I double down on the people I need to keep. It's just, but man, oh man, the ego that gets in the way of that proper decision, uh, I see time and time again, and it frustrates me.
1: Yes, and I think one of the things that you guys have said publicly, and I completely agree with it, is once a, a company goes public, its stock price goes up and down all the time every day. And so, you know, we've created this thing in Silicon Valley where everything needs to look up and to the right. And to your point, not everything is up and to the right. And the reality is you have a choice, which is you can either take your medicine and keep building your business, or you can pretend it's 2021 forever. (laughs) You can be forever 21.
2: (laughs) Chris, look, the company I met you on, I can tell you the math because I kind of lived it, right? Uh, I met you with Aggregate Knowledge in the mid 2000s. We raised money at about a hundred million valuation and the company was on fire and then it wasn't. And we did a down round. We went from 86 people to 15 people and we raised money at 15 after having raised at a hundred. That company exits for a couple hundred million dollars and everybody made out. It's because we took our mess. And by the way, it's no fun going from 85 to 16 people. It's no fun going from 100 to 15. I replaced myself as CEO with Dave Jackabowski, who was a better CEO for the new company. And you know what? We all went to Vegas when we sold the company. You know, we did ask for the money in, 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 in a, in a, in a, in, in a big briefcase, but just like you with Mercury, they refused to give us the money in the briefcase. They insisted on a wire. That kind of pissed me off, but you know, what are you going to do? It pisses
1: me off too. When somebody wants to give me a bunch of money, I want it in a briefcase. <laughs> and I want to meet right. under Damn it. I want to I want to meet under a light in downtown San Francisco in a scary neighborhood.
2: <laughs> no, no, no that, that used to be a funny joke, right? That 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 used to be kind of funny to say, but man oh man, that place is a disgrace. Wow.
1: You know, the ama- so I just read an article in the journal about how Portland's uh, essentially, this is my interpretation, uh, a mirror image of San Francisco and Portland now has a um, uh, population de- de- decline. People are leaving Portland and the path of the two cities to me is pretty similar. You got both incredible uh, West Coast cities, in my opinion, beautiful cities, great downtowns, great walking cities at one point had incredible restaurants and Nightlife and and cafes and 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 life and and businesses and all these sorts of things, and um, I haven't been to Portland uh, for quite a while, but I have been to San Francisco a bunch, and you know I used to work in the city, and um, I don't recognize it anymore.
2: Nope, I agree. I mean FIDI and Soma. There is some activity in the neighborhoods. There are pockets, but you go to Soma and FIDI, it really is out of that bad movie. And and the time where I knew how bad it was is there were certain parts of town where there weren't any homeless anymore, and I figured it out. There was nobody to ask for money, so even the homeless people left those spots.
1: Yeah, there's got to be somebody there to beg to, right? If there's no one there, right. then there's no one there. And um, you, walk
2: blocks, you walk blocks in Soma. You don't see a single person. You used to not be able to walk two blocks without running into somebody you knew. And now you don't see a single soul on the streets. It's actually, you know, I was never a big San Francisco homer, but it is depressing to see the loss of that great environment that we had. But my office was at second and Howard, right in the center of it. And it is just a ghost town. It's, it's tough to see.
1: Yeah. And guys like you and me, we lived through multiple boom times in San Francisco that were very, very exciting. And we were obviously much younger and You know, when you're a younger person and you feel like the whole world is changing and you're in the middle of it, which is certainly how I think many of us felt, certainly how I felt, um, during the dot com era in the nineties, uh, it's very, very exciting. And then we had pockets of that again in the, um, in the 2010s before the, the recession hit. And so, um, it, it is a bummer to, you know, go downtown and, and not see people out and not see people you know, j- jogging and running and eating in outdoor cafes and everybody pitching somebody something on a laptop at a hotel bar or, or you know, right. all that sort of stuff. We were used to. And so what happens to San Francisco, Paul? Like, what, what, And what happens to not just San Francisco, the city, but the whole ecosystem that we all grew up in?
2: Let's first talk about San Francisco. I think that there needs to be a... I think it's going to be a 20-year time frame for the city to come back because it's going to take a new generation of politicians to get in there to fix the institutional problems that you've got there. And you see people like a Gary Tan now potentially throwing their hat in the ring, kind of your libertarian style, uh, left-leaning, don't get me wrong, largely still liberal, but actually know how to run something and want the city to function – I think it's going to take a generation, and that's why I say twenty years for the city to get back to this spot, because the the anti-business, the I don't want you here because you tech bros ruin the city. People who are in charge, they have they they've got to go. And it's not even it's not even a left right thing in San Francisco, in my opinion, because everybody's on the left. Right. It's it's left crazy and left not crazy are your two options and left not crazy needs to get back in charge for a while.
1: (laughs) You know, the interesting thing about uh, crazy on both the left and the right, is there is there radical ability to um, ignore all facts?
2: Of course. Right. (laughs) Of course. Uh, so of course you,
1: you look at what's happened in, in San Francisco and in California, and um, a lot of people do not equate it to policy changes. I, I'll give you a simple example. I was in this argument with uh, somebody recently. So there's two props in California that came into being, I think, in the 2016-ish time frame, if I'm not mistaken, sort of around there, that, in my opinion, have had a tremendously negative impact on California and our crime Prop 47 and Prop 57 and Prop 57. I think you can draw a straight line to from Prop 57 to where we are in San Francisco today with Westfield mall saying, Hey bank, you now own the place, not us. And that is um, the legalization of all threat, theft, a thousand uh, under a thousand dollars. And so the minute you make it uh, a misdemeanor, it's over because if you own Walgreens in San Francisco, Well, all of your transactions are way under $1,000, and your options are to lock up the, um, the razors and ultimately shut the business. Because when somebody steals your merchandise, the cops don't come. And it has led to, in San Francisco and in the vast majority of California, call the cops and tell them your car just got stolen and see what happens. Answer is nothing. And so, what people don't seem to understand is in the beginning, these laws come in and they seem to be we're going to do this because it's humane, because people who are stealing these small ticket items, they're poor, they're underserved, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And um, that may or may not be the case. But what is the case is when you make stealing somebody else's property and ruining somebody else's business legal. You have created the beginning of a society like the one that we have now, in my opinion. And I think the data is there to support it. But most people disagree with me about this.
2: The fact that anyone disagrees with you that about that is absolutely hysterical to me. There is no question that this is exactly what's happened. By the way, let me focus on a word you use there, compassion. See, Duncan Davidson, who I started bullpen with, he told me this years ago when he talked about the 60s. He grew up in the 70s, and so he's a student of history. And let me tell you what college campuses were like in the 70s. He said, Martino, you got to understand what happened was all the adults stopped being adults, and no one was in charge at that point. And this is exactly what happens when you pass a policy. Look, if there are adults still there, you can be compassionate. And when the police officer sees that it's a struggling single mom of 3 kids and she stole a loaf of bread, you know what? Maybe he can look the other way and that actually is what compassion is. But if you tell all the adults to go home because because there's going to be no enforcement of anything, guess what happens? And so The policy as described, this is the only logical conclusion we could have possibly come to. And to do it in the name of compassion is actually the ultimate irony.
1: Amen. hallelujah, brother. And uh, let me give you, for instance, where where I live. So we have a horrible homeless problem where I live. We're on the coast, like most coastal towns in California. Um, State and local government Over a two-year, we and at the beginning of this project, we had roughly four thousand homeless people in Santa Cruz. Over a two-year period, we spent one hundred and twenty-six million dollars on the homeless problem here in our county. At the end of that two-year period, we still had four thousand homeless people. And so, the other thing that doesn't get talked about in California is um, the crime industrial complex. There are massive, supposed do-gooder organizations who only exist off of the government grants that they get to supposedly help people. And by making sure we have perpetual homelessness and perpetual crime, they have perpetual existence. And now we're in a situation where Newsom is about to give an ungodly amount more money to solve the homeless problem. And we all want the homeless problem solved. However, we know, because the facts prove it, that the current homeless industrial complex in California is ill-equipped to solve the problem. And you could argue that some of those folks are now part of the problem. They've become the machine they rage against because now they're focused on perpetual existence as opposed to trying to solve a problem. And so what blows my mind is we have had giant experiments in trying to fix this with giant failure And we're not looking at the causes of why we can't deal with this. We're just going to put more money in it.
2: I agree. And when somebody tells you, Chris, well, the problem is just intractable. The problem is so hard that we can't. Bullshit we are entrepreneurs. We are problem solvers. If you get the incentives in the system right, guess what? We can fix the problem. It's all about incentives. And when the, the, quote, do-gooder organization you're talking about is there for their existence instead of for solving the problem, there is an incentive problem that is wrong, right? It goes back to supply and demand. If you subsidize stuff, you get more of it. If you tax stuff, you get less of it. So if you subsidize homelessness, guess what you get? You get more homelessness. Just, uh, again, these things are immutable, but but I love sometimes in particular when I talk to the younger generation who I don't think is taught logic anymore in school. I don't think logic is what they do. You know, they come out, uh, instead of arguing, they say, I'm from this group, therefore I feel this way. And I'm like, well, that A doesn't lead to B. Well, no, no, but Paul, you don't understand where I grew up and where I came from. I was like, oh, so logic isn't in your neighborhood. Okay, cool. Got it. So what are we going to talk about now?
1: It's so fun that you bring this up. I teach all young entrepreneurs this. I was taught very early um, that if you want to do what at the time we called root cause analysis, and this came from I- the total quality management movement. God bless W. Edwards Deming, one of the greatest thinkers of all time. What One of the things we needed to do was ask why five to seven times. And if we were going to present a case, a thinking, a, 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 a business argument, a business plan, for moving forward on something versus doing some other thing that we had had to have thought it through with enough detail and done enough research to be able to answer five to seven whys because otherwise we were full of shit well today you ask most people why twice and the whole thing collapses
2: yeah no it's look we 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 have it is amazing to me the change in the younger generations that I've seen in my time now in venture as an entrepreneur. So I'm, I'm almost 50 and usual generations, like for regular people are call it 20 years, but tech, the generations is about every seven years. So over that 20 years, 25 years, and actually I've shit, I've been, I've been at this 35 years. I've seen about five generations of kids come up behind me now. And it is amazing The current crop that I see, I get asked questions about work life balance. I get questions about um, things I would have never gotten asked about when they're thinking about starting a company. I'm like, you want to do this because you're passionate about it and you're partly insane. If you're asking me that set of questions, I'm not quite sure that you're cut out for this. I probably had that conversation five times in the prior 30 years. And I have it five times a month now with the current gang. Again, I'm exaggerating, but I want to kind of tr- prove the point.
1: Now, there is an interesting thing. I'm curious if you're seeing this, which is I'm seeing a distinction between millennials and Gen Z.
2: So oh, absolutely.
1: What you absolutely. just said is more my personal experience with millennials and less so with Gen Z. Oh, yeah. Is that, is that your difference. experience?
2: big, big difference. And that's what I'm saying. It's only this current crop. So people who are literally call it 18 to 25 now thinking about starting their companies. you know, even when I get into the ones that are in their late twenties, early thirties now, they're close enough to the prior generations, totally different, but this current crop, they're just built different.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm working with a 24 year old female entrepreneur right now and she's stunning. I mean, just gives me such great hope for the future. (laughs)
2: God bless. Can I, I I need to talk to her. I need some inspiration. Actually, we we're trying to raise
1: some money. So maybe we should talk to you.
2: Oh no, uh, but we're closed for business. Uh, wasn't that the prior? Yeah. Topic? I
1: thought you we were closed.
2: Oh yeah. Shit. We're done. That's
1: it. Well, and, 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 and so to kind of maybe connect some of these dots, the reason I'm worried about San Francisco uh, and the Bay area is because it has been the innovation hub for the world. And, the vast majority of America's new value creation over the last 30 years, or let me say it this way, a meaningful percentage of it has come from venture-backed tech startups that are within you know, a 40-mile radius of downtown San Francisco. And in a world where the analog environment, if you want to call it that, is no longer conducive to that, what happens? Does America continue to drive entrepreneurial innovation and new category creation the way it has historically if there is a geographic dispersing? Maybe it's a positive thing. Maybe that means there are more tech entrepreneurs in the middle of the country than there are on the coast. So maybe it's positive. I don't know. But what I do know is what historically San Francisco in our generation has been legendary at, which is technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship, is now in question, at least in my mind. What say you, Senator Martino?
2: That is not in my future. I'm going to tell you that right now. My oh, wife I'm is running, running for, for your – I want to be board. your
1: campaign manager if you're running for office.
2: No, no, no! You do not, Chris. I'm going to tell you right now. You do not. My wife is running for school board right now, and I can tell you, I've never experienced such crazy in my life. Being the candidate is the hardest thing around. But anyway, back back to your question. I, I I've been asked this question long before the real downturn post COVID in San Francisco because I split my time between Philly, where I am now, and home. Uh, which was Mountain View. Philly is home. Mountain View is where I had my house for all those years. And I would explain to the entrepreneurs in Philly, I was like, look, you got to understand, there's a cycle time difference here in Philly that you don't have in San Francisco. If it takes you two revs to get something right in Philly, it might only take you one in San Francisco. And the reason is because of what you just said, that magic of, down the street is the person who knows. I ran into somebody at the coffee shop. There's this magic that density actually has. And being a suburban kid who kind of likes more rural areas, it, it, it is not my jam to talk about urban density, right? But there is no question when you have it, you have a cycle time on innovation that you don't have in other parts of the country. It doesn't mean that other parts of the country aren't entrepreneurially successful. It's just that the machine's moving slower. And so so it doesn't mean that this dispersal is inherently bad. It probably means we'll be a little bit slower, though. That, to me, is the logical conclusion because you don't have the one concentrated density where the engine runs at absolute max speed. We just don't have that anymore with the Bay Area dispersal dispersion post-COVID, and I don't see any place that's going to go take over that mantle.
1: Yeah, that's sort of where I'm at. Um, Now, I'm curious, when, when I think about those things, so what are some of the ahas? So I think Tiger et al. have proven what I always knew to be true, what I think you probably always knew to be true, you'll tell me, which is the venture startup world is a craft business. It's not a scale business. It's like the custom surfboard business. You can't scale custom surfboards. A craftsperson has to build a custom surfboard. And yes, they can use a CAD machine and all sorts of other technology, and they do. But at the end of the day, you can't scale a custom uh, surfboard business because a human being who's a master has to participate in the process. And I think uh, a lot of that is true for... Uh, building highly valuable category dominating tech companies and tiger in my opinion proved that just throwing money at everything that moves doesn't increase the like of it uh, the the amount of innovation um, because this is a craft business i have a second piece of this argument i want to get to but before i go there what say you paul
2: I remember the first time I was in Silicon Valley, we went to the Venture Law Group. Do you remember Venture Law Group from years and years ago? a guy named Mike Hall there. I was in Silicon Valley like a week. Matt Otko introduced me to this guy. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm at the Venture Law Group. Matt Otko introduced me. I remember Mike Hall saying a sentence to me. This is 1997. Paul, he says, you have to understand, Paul, the venture industry is a cottage industry. And I must admit, I, I don't think I had ever really heard that phrase before. And I remember looking at him kind of, Mike, can you tell me what a cottage industry is? And he gave exactly the explanation that you just gave, not with Tiger because that's obviously later. But it's a craft business; it's inherently unscalable; it's people based, cetera. I don't think there's anything different in 2023 than when Mike Hall in 1997 told me that, and probably in 1962 or whatever it was when Eugene Kleiner said it to, uh, uh, you know, to to to, to Perkins, right?
1: And so the interesting thing about that, so if you if you accept that the startup tech business is a, a cottage industry, is a craft business, and then you begin to think about, okay, so what, what are the values of geographic proximity and particularly at a geographic ecosystem? And historically, they've been incredibly powerful because there's been an ethos that was created here. There's been an ecosystem of entrepreneurs who get successful, make a whole bunch of money, make a bunch of angel investments, make a whole bunch of other people successful. So the guy who was the, you know, VP of product marketing at company X has a brilliant idea and becomes the founder CEO of a new company, obviously Stanford to some degree as well, Berkeley or or to an equal degree, Berkeley. And so you have this incredible environment where at least for a period of time, it felt like industry, education, culture, were all working together to create uh, radical innovation and massive new value. And the evidence is very clear. So now we don't have that, or we don't have that at anywhere near the extent that we used to. Does the geographical, the loss of the sort of colloquial, you're one degree of separation from anyone. This is a small industry where we can all get to each other. Um, does the does, does the geographical disbursement of Silicon Valley, meaning Silicon Valley is more of an ethos now than it is an actual place. Um, does it matter for America's ability to continue to innovate and create value?
2: I think it does, but it will be impossible to do the A-B test right? This is something that will be an argument that people will bullshit about indefinitely because you have this, well, what if there existed a place that was like this, that doesn't exist now in the post COVID world, et cetera. My gut is that innovation will suffer to some small extent, not a major extent. I I don't think this is like, oh my God, us innovation is over because the locus of the tech has now dispersed. But I do think on the margins the number of companies that will be created, the speed with which those companies achieve product market fit, et cetera, I think it'll all be a little bit slower. I don't know how you could possibly test that theory empirically, though, Chris.
1: Yeah, I get that. The thing that worries me is, uh, which is maybe where I want to shift to, so um, is AI. And so in our careers, We lived through and participated in, you know, I I came of age in the dawn of the personal computer. And then as the personal computer went from being a toy to client server, then it became a business critical technology. And then, of course, networking showed up. And then, of course, local networking ultimately ended up becoming the Internet. And now we have the cloud and now we have mobile. So, you know, I don't know how you feel. I feel extremely grateful to have lived through that, that cycle. And now here we are with AI and I feel as as excited about AI as a massive breakthrough category, mega category, as I did about any of those others and maybe even more. I think it's a very exciting time to be in the make a few, make the future different business. Um, And so I guess my concern is we're living at the time of the greatest technology innovation in human history and America's ability to lead that is more in question now than it has been, I think, in the last 30 years.
2: Chris, um, I'm not sure if that's actually a question or more a statement you want me well, to comment I'm curi- on. I'm,
1: yeah, no, I'm curious to your, your reaction. I, I would like to not be right about that. I'm in no way trying to be righteous about that. I, I, I want it to be not true. I want us to be in a place where we feel like we're way forward on our skis, we're leading in AI, we're pioneering in lots of other areas, and that all of the, um, the massive value creating innovation in technology or the a disproportionate amount of it is gonna come from the United States of America. That's the answer that I wanna play for. I just, I'm afraid we might be shifting away from that with a sort of reduction in our ability to create new startups that build different futures and our hesitancy around AI. In other words, are we stuttering at the exact time we should be jamming the throttle?
2: I am much less bearish on this than you, Chris. I do not share your concerns about this. I share your concerns about other things, but not about this. Let's go through the stats. Open AI, hmm. The guy that, one guy behind it, and there was this other guy. Oh, they're all Americans. Uh, Google, the large language model, turns out they wrote the key papers, Microsoft went in big on it. Like you go look at the cast of characters that has led to this current generation. You're hard pressed to find somebody not in the United States. And so I I just think it's our birthright. It continues to be our birthright. Let's not screw it up as opposed to boy, the cities are reconfigured and some of the stuff we've talked about are concerns, make no mistake. Those are concerns, But I think the idea that pick another country other than the U.S. will be the epicenter for AI. I have trouble buying that argument, Chris, which is good, because I don't think you want me to buy that argument.
1: Good. I I hope I'm not. I hope I'm concerned for not good reason. You know, I couldn't help but think recently about the situation in Russia and Ukraine. And you think about catastrophic mistakes that leaders have made throughout history. And I, I think about it and I think, hmm, if what Putin was trying to do was secure a strong future for Russia, let's, let's say that was his motivation. Um, and you, you sort of put up on a whiteboard all the ideas of things that you could do and invest billions and billions and billions in to improve the future opportunity for Russians. Imagine if they'd taken all that money, never mind all the people they've killed, And they've been lost on both sides. And they applied all that to technology because fundamentally Russia's problem is it's a, a resource based economy that is far behind on technology. And instead of investing in an innovation future to create abundance and value, he's invested in death and destruction and murder.
2: And I know it's a different if it's a different story. But this is the microcosm of what happened in San Francisco. I'm not saying that we have a war with the Ukraine in San Francisco. But the analogy is important. Bad policies lead to bad environments. If you decided that you were going to go blow up the Ukraine, guess what? Your people probably didn't do well. If you decided that you were going to legalize crime, your people aren't probably going to do well. Obviously, the scale... And the scope of human destruction between these two things are significantly different. But you know what? Your elected officials matter a lot. And the policies which they pick, the things to which they hang their hat on, they matter a lot. They affect us. Uh, and yeah, wouldn't it have been good if Putin decided he'd be a pro-technology company, uh, country? Yeah, that probably would have been better for all of us. Well, and the irony to me
1: is, um, having been around this industry for quite some time, we know for a fact that in Russia and in f- other former Soviet Union countries, there's some legendary developers.
2: Of course, right? Did you see the te- Did you see the Tetris uh, documentary on Apple TV? As a, yeah, I haven't I seen it yet, but I've I've heard about it. It's it's supposed to be a real hoot, right? Yes, of course. Uh, what company have you been involved in that didn't have great Russian developers? Name that's me what Ron. I'm
1: talking about. That no, I'm seriously like so. You know, I've been involved with a lot of Israeli startups. Well, sure. there are a lot of Russian Jews. Turns well, guess out, what? A whole bunch of Israeli tech startups have cap- capability in the U.S., capability in Israel, and capability either in Russia or former Russian countries with legendary develop. I mean, I have met more legendary Russian developers than I can name. And I just look at it and go, fuck, guys. Couldn't we be investing in building a legendary technology future and, you know, Look, when human beings fight over scarcity, we kill each other. When we collaborate to create abundance, we create abundance.
2: But but here's the big rub and my dad's told me this since I was a little kid. In scarcity comes control. And this is why governments are always scary to me. Governments thrive in scarcity because it allows them to be in power. And so you ask yourself, how's Russia end up in the spot they do? And this is the simplistic version. It's a resource-based economy. They needed the port that the Ukraine was on. It was all about the oil. It was all about resources. It was all about controlling scarcity. Time and time again, you go through the foibles of of U.S. and world history. It's about scarcity. And very few people actually like to invest in abundance. Very few political leaders like to invest in abundance.
1: The irony about that is that if you look at human history, and in my opinion, it's the evidence is very, very clear. When human beings are focused on scarcity, they kill each other and make shit worse. We're going to fight over... Yes. There's only so many bananas. We're going to fight over the bananas. There's only so many tomatoes. Uh, if, if you come anywhere near my tomatoes, I'm going to kill you. When human beings say, hmm, how could we create more food? Good things happen. Right? When human beings collaborate, we can do anything. We can go to space. Right? Human beings... when No other animal can create through collaboration like a human and no other animal can destroy through collaboration like a human. And we fight over scarcity and we collaborate over abundance. And I don't know why. And maybe some people think that's a simplistic point of view and maybe it is, but I think history bears it out. Um, I, I just don't know why as somebody that grew up in scarcity, who has learned to create and be part of abundance. You know, you know that old line. I've been rich and I've been poor, and poor is better. Well, I've had scarcity and I've had abundance, and abundance is better.
2: Yeah, I think you got it backwards, but I knew which one it was. I, I know, I know, my friend here is uh, sometimes gets it backwards.
1: Well, I'm I'm a dysfucklick, so you know, I'm, I'm neurodivergent.
2: Oh, that- oh, cool, super cool. I love that. Love that, Lockhead.
1: <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. We we could talk about this. You want, want to get into real trouble in this conversation? So, the Supreme Court's decision. Yes. Saying that Harvard can't, can no longer uh, practice affirmative action. What do you think about that, Paul?
2: So today is literally the day of the uh, decision. I I think this will prove to be one of the single most important days in court history. I have said for decades that affirmative action is arguably one of the most important topics that no one talks enough about in the United States, because ultimately it comes down to what we're talking about entrepreneurship, merit, investment, allocation of resource, et cetera, all of the things that are the core innovation engines of the country are affected by policies around affirmative action. And a statement from the Supreme Court saying you can't use these ancillary factors in, in, in making your decisions about who gets to go to college, I think will have profound impacts in terms of us, in my opinion, returning to a merit-based as opposed to identity-based um, society. And I am a huge advocate for this decision. Uh, I have been staunchly anti-affirmative action for my entire career. And uh, honestly, I don't know how anybody who's in the business of excellence, like I am in venture capital, could be for affirmative action.
1: So I love that we're having this conversation. Um, so I posted on LinkedIn today about this. And, you know, I don't have a huge LinkedIn following, but I have a reasonable one. And most of my posts get, you know, in in the thousands of views. And all I did was take a, a snapshot of the Wall Street Journal headline that said Supreme Court overturns um, affirmative action, posted it and said, I'm curious about what you think of this decision. And I'm curious to see, can we have a thoughtful discussion on LinkedIn? And um, that post, by the time we started this, that post was about two hours old and it had less than a hundred views. And it's interesting to me that some combination of the algorithm and, and people's willingness to interact in public has destroyed any virality that that post would have. And it's not that I care about virality. I wonder about what is it about social media companies and us as human beings that we can't talk about this topic in a public open forum, that it gets squashed?
2: Well, I mean, that's a very deep well, Chris. Part of it is that the social media companies have enabled this Cycle time of outrage to be the core business model of of usage, and and look, I'm one of the founders of this stuff, right? I did Tribe with Mark Pincus in O2, right? We have patents that go back uh, two three years before Facebook on this stuff. How to make virality? Zynga was then a, a byproduct of a lot of those lessons that were learned, and you know the crack that were the early Zynga games. You know, we we were there for all of that, Chris, um, and and so. What's happened is in this new world, uh, when there is the threat of, of being canceled as the result of, of saying something that is now deemed to be politically incorrect, people, why would you engage in that discussion? It takes a uniquely confident person to be able to go out there and talk about a topic where two years later they might deem that your, your, your speech on this topic is no longer socially acceptable. Uh, I mean, that can't be good for society. Well, and and
1: so, so I'm not one of those people. I will wade into those waters all day long. Yes. Because I'm an advocate for free speech, but I'm an advocate, more importantly, for thinking. So when you look at this issue broadly, multiple things can be true. And this is something that a lot of people seem to have fucking forgotten. Is there racism in the U.S.? Yes. Is there injustice in the U.S.? Yes, are there things that are fucked up in the education system that disadvantage uh, non-white people? Yes. Is the answer to those discrimination? No. Just like to yes. me, the answer to, like the answer to, 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 to speech is not banning speech. The answer to speech you don't like is more speech.
2: Like Chris, this is odd. the idea that you solve you solve despair. The idea that you solve discrimination by institutionalizing discrimination. Come on, there's no way that that could possibly be the right answer. Uh, but I do want to make one other point that was related to kind of why the dialogue is the way it is. I was out with a very good friend of mine who who lives here in Bucks County. Very liberal guy. Uh, him and I always get along because. I'd call him the fair-minded liberal guy, where we'd argue back and forth and we butt heads. He told me a story that I almost fell out of my chair. That I think you'll appreciate. So it's June, it's Pride Month. This guy is as—I mean, he is as progressive as they come. He said, Paul, I want to tell you. Um, some people knocked on my door because they told me my Pride flag was out of date, and that the flag I have is now longer is is now considered to be offensive because it doesn't have this. Other thing related to intersectionality in it, and that I best remove it to be a good liberal. He's like, dude, I've been flying that flag for years before you even knew what it was. You can fuck off. Like, when I hear a story like that, that that is the world that we've now gotten into that no good can come of that. A guy who's been an ally his whole life, a guy who was flying that flag before anybody cared is going to get told, told by a younger group of progressives that the new one, I think he said the phrase was, your old flag is reminiscent of violence. You must get the new flag. Wh- 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 what re-education camp are we in here, Chris?
1: Well, and this is, so this is where, and I've gotten into a lot of trouble for this. Um, on one hand, having a conversation about DEI, I think is very important. And you could even argue that we should put our thumb on the scale. You could argue that. And in some cases, I might even agree with you. In my personal life, I put the thumb on the scale. Yes. I, I make certain choices for certain kinds of people that I'm going to spend time in, that I'm going to invest in, that I'm going to work with uh, as entrepreneurs, uh, that I'm going to have on my podcast, etc. I make those decisions. And I think that's fair. And, and there's lots we can talk about about systemic racism that's completely fucking wrong and needs to go fixed, get fixed. But the, the solve for discrimination is not more discrimination said in a different way. Do you want to be the person who got
2: into Harvard because you were in this other group? No, you don't. Look, look, this is so my, my wife tells a great story. My wife, as you know, is an Indian girl. She grew up in rural Alabama. And, you know, what's funny. She tells like most Indians. One of my,
0: right? of course, <laughs> part of the
2: Southern Indian mafia. Don't don't mess with them. But what's funny is she, she tells a story and she's actually, as I said, she's running for school board. So she tells us on the campaign trail and it bears repeating here. She's like, you know, I grew up in rural Alabama. I knew I was a little bit different, but it never bothered me. There was occasionally a Christian who asked me to convert. I'm a Hindu. That was about it. It wasn't until I got to MIT that I felt like I was a victim when people told me that I was a victim. And, and I'm just like, yes, this is a profound thing to understand. When you're taught that your racial identity makes you a victim, which she was never taught in Alabama, even though she was different. She was taught that at school. And she's like, oh, I don't like this. And, and she remembers being frustrated. And I get I'm putting words in her mouth to tell her own story. She's like, at the end of the first year, I, was like, I don't want to feel like that. I'm going to go back to thinking the way I did when I grew up in rural Alabama, I'm not a victim. I won't feel like a victim. I won't let the system tell me that. I'm going to go out there and by the way, I'm at MIT cuz I deserve to be here. I know that I deserve to be here. Do you know how important it is that I know I'm here on merit, not because I checked some box? I mean, that that's think about what you do to the psyche of the person who knows that they're there because they checked a box. That, that is not doing anybody a favor in terms of – I don't think of, so. Uh, it, I, 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 and by the way, put your thumb on the scale. I agree with you. It's the exact same thing we said about the cop looking the other way at, at, the, at, at, the, at, at the young mother stealing the bread. You and I make decisions all day long to give somebody a break who might not have gotten a break. We do that. Yeah. I do that all day long. I mean you go look at the entrepreneurs I back. You go look at the causes I'm involved in. I have a – I have the same kind of track record as you. The, the the kid who was on the wrong side of the tracks, who had it hard, was from the ro- wrong racial group, you name it. You and I always back that kid. That's well, Because you're
1: the different guy that got counted out and I'm the different guy that exactly.
2: got counted out. We're that guy. We've always been that guy. We've always had a... But to institutionally say that we're going to do this to redress some problem from prior generations, bullshit. That is not the way to solve that yes. problem.
1: And and in some places, and I got into a, a shit ton of trouble at Ray Wong's Enterprise Conference over this comment, um, DEI has metastasized into the machine that it used to raise rage against. Which is DEI at some places is about managing the ratios and about optics and about numbers and quotas. And as I said in my LinkedIn post that was completely deprioritized by the algorithm and or the radical liberals at at LinkedIn, um, do we want uh, airlines to be sensitive and open and, and diverse as employers? Yes, we do. And which airline do you want to fly on, the one with the best DEI record or the one with the best safety record?
2: Right. And the one with the best safety record probably went out of its way to help out a couple people who didn't have access go get those flying lessons see again both things can be simultaneously true right you can actually affirmatively help and have programs to get groups that haven't traditionally been in your field there that's good for business well i am and you can do things in the
1: spirit of radical generosity you know when the war in ukraine started you know, we have a non-consequential uh, uh, newsletter that entrepreneurs read. We said every Ukrainian entrepreneur who wants free category pirates gets it. Period. No question. Yeah, all you got to yeah. do is send us a note that says you're a Ukrainian entrepreneur and we give it to you. Period. Yes. You Send us a note and lie. I don't. We don't give a fuck. Right? That's called putting your thumb on the scale. At least a little. We all make, can make those decisions.
2: That's right. And that's actually good business too, at the end of the day, opening the door for as many people as possible is exactly right. Um, and, and I guarantee you that there is, there is a version of DEI, which is just called being a good human being that you and I have practiced our entire lives and people gave us breaks when we were the, 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 the little ugly duckling too. And we know, we know how that works. Um, but yes, the idea that we are now going to start doing the – when the bean counters show up, you know it's bad. That's bad in any business. When the bean counters show up, you're done. And if the bean counters show up asking how many of this and how many of that you got, you know you're in trouble.
1: Yes. My other argument with all of this is if we're going to talk about DEI, then let's talk about DEI across the board. I am part of a uh, 15 to 20% of the population that's neurodiverse. I have four or five different learning differences. Well, guess what? The entire fucking education system is discriminatory against me. Everything in which they operate is built for people with different brains, not my brain. That's discriminatory against me. Uh, In the state of California, if you're dyslexic and want extra or need extra time for a test, which is designed for somebody who's uh, neuro, not neuro uh, different. Okay, so it's already discriminatory in its design. Now you want extra time so that my different brain, because my different brain needs time to try to fit into your fucking box. I have to be diagnosed as having a fucking disability. That's about as racist as you could get, particularly when 15 to 20 percent of the population are neurodifferent. We don't talk about that. And there's a whole bunch of other difference difference the word different uh, with an S on it that don't get included. So the other thing that's gone on with D E I is it's D E I for these people on these topics and this thing and everything else we don't talk about. Well, it's either D E I or it's not, it's either equal justice and opportunity for all, or it's fucking
2: not. It's exactly right. And, and it's always a Olympics of, of outrage to be at the top of the list of the preferred D E I group, this particular calendar month or year. Right. Uh, I mean, I sometimes refer to this as left on left crime. It's my it's one of my favorite phrases. Right. Left on left crime is, well, wait a minute. You're more aggrieved than I am. So I go to the top of the line on this. And I just love when I when I see left on left crime like that. It cracks me up.
1: Uh, how so, you know, Silicon Valley and the West Coast is, is so incredibly liberal How have you been able to have a career being so? uh, Would you describe
2: yourself as libertarian, Paul? Certainly libertarian, but I'd also I'd also dare say I'm actually conservative, which is the scarier word to use in the modern day, right? You know, you've got kind of got levels of great. Yeah, libertarian, okay, we can put up with you. Conservative, oh, scary. Oh, religious. Oh, boy, you better get the hell out. It is actually funny. Remember that episode of Silicon Valley where they had the gay Christian get out it for being Christian? One of my all-time favorite episodes of any television show ever. You know, he calls up his board members, dude, you outed me. Don't you understand this can affect my career that I'm a devout Catholic? Oh, that was a great episode.
1: Funny, I never watched the show. Um, it was
2: so good, dude. It was, it was actually, let me tell you why it was so good. It was so true. It hurt, Chris. It, yeah. it, like it, it hurt to watch certain things on the show.
1: My feeling about it was always, you know, if you're a cop, you don't necessarily want to go home and watch cop shows after dinner, you know?
2: So. And it was that way. It was that way in that it was so exactly what you were doing at work. And so if you want it, if you wanted to relive the day, that was your way to do so.
1: And and so for me, if we're going to have a diversity conversation, let's have a big D diversity conversation, not a small D conversation. And by the
2: way, let me tell you a story. Just last yesterday, a good friend of mine called me up. Uh, Her company was in the process of being sold. Uh, The closing is supposed to be the first week of July. And she told that the acquisition is off because uh, a couple people who would work for her were uncomfortable with her christian writings called off the acquisition of the company got a call last night i said listen you need to make sure that that story is told because you know what that's called anti-christian bigotry and that's a story that needs to be told that is not right in in anybody's book Uh, but you know hey so and so we can't have you here being the manager of these two lgbtq uh, people because they're uncomfortable with your christian views that's not the world I want to live in.
1: We're, we're way over the line. We're way, way over the line. And, and, and this is what I mean when I say that in some places, in some cases, DEI has become the machine that it rages against. Uh, I got into a big debate with the head of diversity for one of the largest uh, tech companies on planet Earth uh, about swearing. And she was explaining that I would be asked to leave at her company. And um, I said to her, well, swearing is part of my personal self It's me being me. And she said, yeah, but um, we find at our company, we find that offensive. I said, I'm not talking about swearing at somebody. That's different. I'm talking about, fuck yeah, that's a great idea. No, no, can't do that. I said, okay, you ready for this, Martina? I said, okay. And at your company, if I worked there, I'd get fired for that. Yes, yes. And if tomorrow at your company, I showed up with a wig and a dress and makeup on and said, call me Sally, I would be celebrated for being my authentic self at work. Yes? Yes. Do you see any hypocrisy in any of that? No. I said, okay, so so in one dimension, I can express myself exactly how I want because that's an accepted way of doing this. And in another, I cannot. Well, you don't have language diversity now, do you?
2: Chris, your mistake in all of this, and I got to tell you, I see this time and time again. That thing that you're bringing to the table called logic just screws you up every time you talk to somebody, Chris. That, That clearly spoken, logical sentence that you said, you should have known better to say that to the head of DEI. You should have known better Than to get an audience from the head of DEI, because logic is definitely not at the heart of those policies, Chris.
1: And then I said, hey, listen, what percentage of your employee base is neurodifferent? Oh, you don't know. Do you ask? Oh, you don't ask. Okay. so I'm neurodifferent. I don't have a GED. Um, Do people with non GEDs get hired at your company? No, you got to have an advanced degree, right? Right. OK, well, a lot of us who are neurodifferent uh, are not capable of a degree. Har- I can't go to Harvard as a student. They invite me there to go speak as a lecturer, but I couldn't get into the school. I can teach there, but I can't learn there because I don't have a GED, because I don't fit in your fucking box.
2: Chris, I think you're talking about one of the most, in my opinion, one of the worst mistakes that Silicon Valley has made over all the years I've been here. The insistence on degree requirements—absolute n- nonsense from some bygone error. Hell, I can meet a 16-year-old kid who's in high school who co- code circles around some of the best engineers at these companies. No, you—you don't have a—you don't have a degree. I can't—I can't let you in here. This has actually been a key issue for me for years because. I felt like we've artificially kept the doors closed to some of our most talented and differently brained people that we need in our companies because of these artificial requirements around do I really care if you completed a four-year college degree in order to hire you if you're a crackerjack coder and you've been coding since you're six do I care no well that's our company policy that's that was nonsense 20 years ago and it's even more nonsense now. And so this is the conversation,
1: in my opinion. We're we're either going to have the big diversity conversation or let's not have it. Right. The the reality is there's lots of oppressed groups. I could build a very compelling argument that says that the education system and the hiring protocols in in the United States of America are purposely racist against the neurodiverse. I don't think that's true, by the way, but I could make the argument
2: there's a lot of people who get kept out, and I also try and explain this, too, in regards to there's a DEI problem in venture capital. Um, Silicon Valley is too white. Silicon Valley is too Asian, whatever whatever it is. What's interesting, it comes back to the college piece of the puzzle to me. I try and explain this to people who aren't in our world, that grew up the way we did, that lived this since we were kids, basically. So. Oh, yes. Take a look at these numbers. There are not that many of these people. There's that many of those people. There's this many of those people. Great. I always get nervous when I get in that discussion to begin with. But it's not because somebody at the door said, I don't want those people and those people here. It's because the college credential is actually what the fixation is on. And that correlates to those things. And so if you want to blame something, it's actually the right place to blame is what you just talked about. It's the credentialing system. It's the university. It's, if there is a racism or sexism, it's, it pales in comparison to the collegism or whatever it is you'd want to call that word that happens in Silicon Valley. That leads to bigger disparities than an actual racist or an actual sexist making the hiring decision.
1: Thank you. The other thing that's missing in this conversation is radical individualism, radical self-responsibility. The idea that um, nobody owes us nothing. It's like, oh yeah, I could spend my whole life going, I'm dyslexic and I have everything in the world that's unfair and nobody likes me, everybody hates me, I'm going to eat some worms. Or I could say, okay, fuck it, I'm going to go figure it out and nobody right. can stop me that's right right go fuck yourself i'll run circles around phds all day long i do it every day (laughs) i'm gonna go compete on my own merit you put you put a black mark on me because of one thing well great i'm gonna come around come around the side door instead of the front door
0: yeah
1: right this is the other this is the part that gets that 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 gets missed which is we are all going to face radical adversity some of it might be a function of some group that we're associated with. And some of it might just be because life's fucking hard. That's right. But however, whatever the purpose or wh- whatever the basis, I should say, of the, the the difficulty that we're going
2: to face, it's up to you to say, well, fuck that. I'm just going to go right through this thing. That's exactly right. And I think one of the questions you asked me earlier too, Chris is, Martino, you're kind of you're kind of known to be on the right, but you still got along in Silicon Valley. I think the reason it worked is actually what you just said. I am such a radical individual. I am such an iconoclastic type person who doesn't give a, you know what about stuff that I think it works right in that, in that Silicon Valley does respect what you just described. And if you're a little bit of a a real maverick, um, I think that's been a key in, in my experience. And, and the more that you embrace being iconoclastic, the more other people just can't put you in a box that they want to put you into.
1: Yes. H- how old were you, Paul, when you knew you were different?
2: Oh, uh, uh, five, six years old. Yeah. So it was an awesome Lock it. I get a great story. So a friend of mine is a teacher at the elementary school I went to. Him and I went to this elementary school together. So he's so like, he, Welcome back, Cotter. He calls it, yeah, literally. And, and this is you know, this is where I went, this is where I went to you know, kindergarten through sixth grade, fifth grade. He calls me up and says, Martino, I got something fun to do. We have career day. I know you can't explain what the fuck you do to adults. I want you to come in and tell the sixth graders what you do. So I go to career day at my literally at my school, I was in the classroom that I was in in second grade. I immediately walked in. I was like, oh, dude, this is Miss Sherlock's classroom. I was in this room when I was in second grade. And it was just so fascinating to talk to the kids and be back there having these kinds of conversations. Uh, I mean, it was just w- w- what a hoot to try and explain what we do. And one of the questions I get from one of the kids is they're like, you know, tell me about." So do you ever, you know, tell me about work, Like, you know, again, this is a kid's question. So I can't remember exactly what it was. Do you, do you work all day? Do you ever take time off? Do you go on a vacation, right? They're asking questions like that. And then finally, the one kid asked me what you asked is, so you're kind of really weird and different than the rest of the kids. When did you know that? I was like, when I was sitting right where you guys are, I was like, by the time I was in second or third grade, I knew I was built different. I, I, I knew it. And I, I kind of looked around everybody. I was like, eh, eh. there was one other kid I thought was built different than me. Turns out I was b- even more different than him. But, uh, but yeah, I knew it. I knew it in elementary school. And I, I think a lot of us in, in this knew it in elementary school. And it was what a hoot to be back there 35, 40 years later.
1: Well, and so the interesting thing to me about you in that regard is, um, so how old were you when you graduated college?
2: So this gets back to my my buddy. I had a buddy, and him and I decided we weren't even going to graduate high school. We we're going to just apply to college without graduating because we were just crazy, and it was his idea. And he was out, but I went and did it. <laughs> so so, so I love. How this. old were
1: you when you got into college?
2: So I went from eleventh grade to being a sophomore. Yeah, and so so I I was supposed to be the class of. Okay. Technically I am the class of 93 in high school, Mm -hmm. but I'm also the class of 95 in college. That's a neat trick because I skipped two years. I skipped 11th grade and I skipped freshman year. I graduated then college in three years. Yep. I started grad school at Princeton and I still couldn't have a drink. I started grad school at Princeton and I was 19 or 20. I forget which one it was. So here's a
1: question for you. Um, you're radically different. And because some of that difference comes from um, uh, let's just call it being radically smart about some things and having radical intelligent uh, capabilities that some of us don't have. That's a skill that could cause a lot of people to fucking hate you. That's a skill that I could imagine Um, trying to dumb down myself a little so as to not be threatening or so as to be more accepted by others. In other words, you're a person whose intellectual brilliance is such that I can imagine scenarios where you might have felt a need to dampen down who you really are so as to not intimidate others. Has that been the case in your life?
2: Lockhead, you know I'm an asshole, so I doubled down the other way. Let me tell you the story that explains it all. Again, I'm stuck on high school right now, high school and college and all that. In 10th grade, there was a set of people in my English class, and they were those people the naysayers, the let's knock this kid down a peg, let's put him in his place. And the teacher, she was all in on it. She was, she, she felt the same way that these kids did. And I could tell she had it in for me. And so I remember there, it was three girls, they're picking on me, they're saying something. I remember at some point, I just looked at them. And this is, remember, I'm in 10th grade, so I'm 15 years old. I looked at the three of them and I said, listen, I'm going to give you a piece of advice. You should stop talking to me this way because I am going to buy and sell you in the future. And you should just know that. So guess what happens to me, Lockhead? <laughs> The teacher overhears me say this, and she sends me to the principal's office. All right. I love this. So I'm now in the principal's office. Paul, I heard you said something kind of unfriendly to the three girls in your 10th grade English class. I said, yes, Dr. Bond. Remember, Dr. Bond, well, that was our principal. Since so Dr. Bond, I have a simple question back for you. Is anything I said to those three girls incorrect? And he looked at me and he said, you know, Paul. You're probably right, but it's not a polite thing to say.
0: (laughs) So there you go.
2: That's when I was still in heist. I mean, that was 10th grade. (laughs) So do you think it's any different 30 years later? It's the same thing 30 years later.
1: So there's an interesting thing about this, which is, um, and this is probably a radical oversimplification, but what the fuck? There's two kinds of different people. There are people who are, shy about their different and and, and hide it and and maybe are a little insecure about it or or maybe don't embrace it and there's others who embrace it so much it's a badge of honor and it can immediately go from being a badge of honor to a giant go fuck yourself uh at a second's notice if and when required
2: (laughs) i'm i live to be in the second group man it's just like i think you and i are you are one of the only people that I know that are as radically in that second group as I am. I don't think there's actually a lot of us who embrace this the way that we do. Not yes. many.
1: And, you know, I get asked about this myself. I'd be curious if this is true for you because um, I'll hear people say, because in a lot of, a lot of ways, I, I teach people today to be different. You know, that's really a lot about what category design fundamentally is. And they say, well, isn't it hard to be different or, you know, and, and I, 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 this sounds crazy to some people I know, but I don't relate to, it's hard to be different. And I don't relate to, um, standing out as hard and I don't relate to, it's tough to stand up and stand out. It's, it's all I got, you know, people look at it and say, oh, well, you're courageous to do X, Y, and Z. And. It's, I don't feel courageous at all. It's all I got. That's how it feels to me. Is that how it feels to you, Paul?
2: That's it. But Chris, you the our club has got so few members in it. I would be hard pressed to name you another person off the top of my head who's in the club that you and I are talking about right now.
1: Hmm. And so do
2: you feel like an alien in the world? I know that I'm an alien in the world. I don't fight it, right? It's just like there's no... Right. There's, there's no confusion on the matter.
1: How long have you not fought it?
2: You know, I I don't know that I can answer that question exactly the way I have the anecdotes on some of the other things, but, but I think I've, I think once I got called out enough times and I realized that kowtowing to the people calling me out, wasn't who I was. I did that a couple times and it just felt so yucky that I was just like I ain't doing that again.
1: Yeah, there's pain associated with not being true to yourself for sure.
2: No, there, a lot of pain not associated with that.
1: The other thing you and I, I think, share. I, I don't give a fuck about getting fired.
2: Yeah, I, like- I, I've never
1: understood why it's. It's like a. I don't. It's like it's like people have that as a fear, and it's like when I was being manufactured inside my mom, I didn't. They didn't give me that gene, or they didn't give me that organ next to my spleen. And so I have like, I, I have zero fear of getting fired. I don't give a shit.
2: But, but Chrissy, look, there is a thing. And this is why I think that people who are built like us are such a, a rare group is you need two or three, basically pieces of crazy all at the same time, right? You, you need all of the crazy and built different, combined with a 100% self-confidence, right? You have to have, so a a person who's not afraid of getting fired has 100% confidence in their abilities because they will do the next thing. They will start the next company. So if you only have 99% confidence in your abilities, you start then having those thoughts. So you gotta be, You know, I tell people this all the time, entrepreneurship is like a mental illness that's useful, right? And so you and I, you, you and I kind of have, we, we've got multiple mental illnesses all at the same time, right? We have the entrepreneurial mental illness, but we also have the self-confidence mental illness and we have the don't give a fuck mental illness all at the same time. That, that puts us in a pretty small group lockhead.
1: <laughs> Did you start that diatribe off by saying
2: entrepreneur is a mental illness that's very useful? Is that what you said? i I say, it's one of my stump speeches I give to, you know, I I say, look, you got to understand no rational person does what we do. No rational person wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to topple that big company with my idea. No rational person wakes up and says, I'm going to be the the, the, the king of the world. No rational person makes the trade-offs and decisions around risk that we do. So embrace the fact that your brain is wired differently. And by definition, that makes you insane. Right. It's a mental illness because normal brains aren't wired the way our brains are wired.
1: It's so funny because the, you're so right, because the number one thing that gets me going is the status quo. You know, when somebody says, well, that's the way it is and, and the way it is sounds dumb to me. I'm like, well, why the fuck's it that way? That doesn't make any fucking sense. And one of my favorite expressions in this regard is never forget everything is the way that it is. Because somebody changed the way that it was. That's right. And I believe that
2: I'm somebody who can change things. That's right. That's right. And most people don't. Oh, no, not most people. See, that that to me is, is is the mistake in your phrase. The vast, 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 vast majority of people don't think that way. The group of people who are wired entrepreneurially is so much smaller uh, than then I think most people recognize. It's not like, oh, half of us are this white. No, it's a very small number.
1: I'm reminded of a story uh, when Mark Randolph, the founder of Netflix, uh, when his book came out, he came on he came on the podcast. And he recounted for me the story of how they were on the verge of bankruptcy and they oh, yeah. were trying to figure out what to do. And then they got a call from the CEO of Blockbuster and they went down there and uh, and met with them And they proposed Blockbuster buy Netflix for 50 million bucks. And when, at that point, I think Reed was CEO and he was chairman. Anyway, the two of them were there together. And when Reed said 50 million, Mark said, and I forget the guy's name, the CEO of Blockbuster literally laughed out loud. Anyway, meeting did not go well. They did not buy the company. They did not invest, obviously. They get in the plane and Mark turns to... (laughs) (laughs) turns to read and says, well, I guess we're just going to have to put him out of business.
2: So exactly. Only a crazy person would think that way. And I got a good coda for you. I'm not going to say his name, but let's just say the person who made that decision is a good friend of mine. The person who said no on the blockbuster side is a very, very good, close personal friend. And I have told him repeatedly you have to own that story, dude. Don't hide from that story. Like it is actually your birthright now that you were the guy who said no to that. Like, like literally. Is Paul? Well, you know, I, you know, people will take no, dude. You got to own that, dude. If I was that guy, I would like have it on my license plate. I was the dude who told Netflix to scratch when I was the head of blanket blockbuster. Like, I would have that on my license plate. And he's <laughs> a very good friend.
1: Wow. That's fascinating. You know, that's another, I mean, this is a side note, but it's, it's, I embrace all that stuff, right? Like people find it funny that on my personal website, I have all the negative reviews up there.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And look, another good friend of mine is Tim Donahue, right? Tim was the guy I made my film Inside Game about. He was the NBA referee who bet on his own games. And it was funny because he actually, He's gone through this mental process and I've actually watched it over the years. He went from, I hide myself. I'm out of it. And then at some point he just sort of woke up. He says, dude, that's who I am. That's who I'm going to be on the day I die. Like I got to go. I am that guy. And here's, what's so cool about him deciding to do that. When we did the press tour for the film, Tim is a bigger celebrity than almost any other athlete I hang out with. When I go to a, when I go to a sporting event and I'm with Tim, more people come up to talk to me than if I'm with Shaquille O'Neal or if I'm with you name him. Tim, the is guy the who bet biggest, on his own games, he is he is more recognized at stadiums than almost any other athlete I go with, and he's not an athlete, right? He's the referee. Right. Uh, we, we were down at the Phillies World Series game uh, uh, down in uh, uh, down in Houston. Uh, dude, guy gets mobbed. He gets mobbed. So what's funny too is the the, the players who played with him have this huge respect for him because he admitted what he did, right? Other referees let their personal biases get in the way of the way that they called the game. He's the only guy who's ever admitted it. So by embracing that this is who he is, he's actually gotten the respect of a lot of the people who would otherwise, you would think, who would otherwise think that they would hate him. Yes, I remember being out in in, in in. There was we we were at Live, the 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 big venue right next to Staples Center. We were at the bar there, like it's an hour after they're closing, and we got big time athletes and celebs with us. They won't leave the place because they're beating Tim's here. Like, they love they won't let us leave, and I'm like, I'm like Tim, this is hysterical. <laughs> and, and and you're sitting there and you're like, dude, the biggest celebrity in this room is Tim, but it's because he decided to do what I'm what I always tell my blockbuster buddy he should go do. He embraced it and said, "That's who I am."
1: I love it. You got time for one more story on this? It just just happened.
2: Go. One more and I got to run.
1: So, I've gotten to know these guys just in the native digital world. Never met them in in the IRL. Um and a couple guys who run a small custom motorcycle company in the middle of the country called Janus Motorcycles. And without going through all the details, everything about a Janus bike is 100% different than all all the other bikes. Mm -hmm. It's old timey in the way that it looks. It's not fast. Um, It's not any of that. And the category of motorcycle they are is they call themselves, uh, what you do when you're on a Janus is you go rambling. This is okay. the motorcycle you take out on a Sunday afternoon with your honey and you drive around town and go get an ice cream. This is not a crotch rocket. This is not in, anyway. And every bike's custom. So uh, fairly recently, some some well-known YouTuber who reviews motorcycles reviewed their bikes and literally shit on every single thing about them. For all the reasons that a, that somebody who loves a crotch rocket would hate this kind of, it's too expensive, exactly. it's stupid, it's this, it's that, it's the motor's a shitty lawnmower motor, it's the, you, know, you name it, this guy fucking said it. Well, What did these guys do? They blogged about it, they put it on LinkedIn, and they put it on their homepage, and what they essentially declared was, and these are the words they used, when the motorcycle industrial complex hates you, You must be doing something right.
2: (laughs) I guarantee that's the best sales. That's the best ad campaign that company has ever run. (laughs) Amen. Hallelujah. Anything else, Martino? Dude, I love that story, dude. Embrace your different, dude. That's how we roll, Lockhead.
1: That's how we roll Martino. And hey, we would you would, could we do this more often? I think we haven't done this for like five years or three years or something.
2: And way too long. And look, I even got legit set up now. So you I know I was looking. Quality.
1: You have your sexy shore mic going and you look you look and sound like a professional.
2: Um amen. You amen. are always a
0: professional, Lockett. Great to see you. Thank you, brother. That was the legendary Paul Martino of Bullpen Capital. You can find out more about Paul at Bullpencap.com. Or find him on LinkedIn at Paul J. Martino. We'd like to thank you for spending your time with us. And don't forget to pick up your new Lomi Bloom at Lomi.com today. And our friends at Airspeed have a powerful suite of Slack apps that help your team connect on a deeper level. Improve your team's happiness, engagement, and collaboration with Airspeed's suite of apps. Airspeed, the easiest way to connect and celebrate your team at GetAirspeed.com. That's GetAirspeed.com. And don't forget to pick up your copy of the number one bestseller in marketing and startups, Category Pirates' The 22 Laws of Category Design on Amazon today. That's The 22 Laws of Category Design. Today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. This podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All episodes contain nuts and content known to the state of California to cause radically non-obvious thinking, new categories, and exponential results. Please be kind and rewind. All rights disturbed. Please contact your doctor, lawyer, accountant, shaman, spiritual advisor, yoga instructor, bud tender, and category designer before doing anything about anything you hear here today. Everything is the way it is because somebody changed the way it was. In everything we believe, we've been taught to believe. Produced and edited by me, Jason DeFilippo. If you're in the tech industry, check out my podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Sarah Knox and Jamie J are in charge of technical execution and Lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon. RJ and EX Bobas do our web development. Cedric Bieros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack. Our accountants are three balance sheets to the wind. We record on Squadcast.fm. Enzo Ferrari was right. Listen to the Tragically Hip and teach kids AI. Thank you, Candy Dandy. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together. Our Deepest, deepest apologies go to Sam Bankman fried Sorry, Sammy, we just ran out of time for you. Till next time, stay safe, stay legendary, and follow your different.